Exceeding Expectations, episode 19. Welcome to another edition of Exceeding Expectations, the podcast where we try to help you over-deliver and give your customers an amazing experience. Episode 19 is with Mark Sanborn, the author of eight books, including the bestseller, The Fred Factor, How Passion in Your Work and Life Can Turn the Ordinary into the Extraordinary. And that book has sold more than 1.6 million copies internationally. He has many other books, including You Don't Need a Title to Be a Leader, How Anyone Anywhere Can Make a Positive Difference, um, and and many other books as well. So here is this week's episode with Mark Sanborn. Here we are for another edition of Exceeding Expectations, and I have the, the undoubted honour of speaking with a man called Mark Sanborn. How are you doing, Mark? I'm well, thanks. Thank you very much for, for agreeing to coming onto the show. Um, I mean, you are, you've written so many fantastic books, and your, your track record, it, it took me about two days just to read everything that you've done. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm prolific, if nothing else. And, and what is your sort of main area of focus at the moment? My primary focus is in leadership development as a keynote speaker and author. I do also speak and write on customer service strategy, thanks to uh, my book, The Fred Factor, which has been very well received here in the U.S. and abroad. But uh, I'm an advisor to leaders, and I use primarily the spoken and written word to do that. And and you touched upon some of the books you've done, because you've done, was it eight books now? Yes, depending on how you count. I've contributed to any number of anthologies have been featured in books, but in terms of books that I have authored, uh, written, and have been published, eight is as good a number as any. And is the most recent one The Fred Factor? No, that was in 2004. That was a long time ago, but I did write Fred 2.0, which is kind of a sequel, if you will, uh, a couple of years ago. My most recent book, is The Potential Principle, and that uh, has been out over a year now. And I also have a book releasing fall of 2019 called The Intention Imperative. So that'll make it uh, number nine later this year. Have they all been sort of around the sort of customer service area, or how have they differed, the books? I've written on subjects of interest to leaders, like customer service and team building and change, and uh, how to uh, continually improve your organization and your professional skills. So the umbrella under which all my books uh, are is leadership, but uh, they they are focused on any number of different topics. I wrote a book called The Encore Effect, which I wrote uh, to help anyone improve their performance. But I think that's probably been embraced as my sales book. So if it's of interest to leaders, it's of interest to me. And I think the reason I must have thought Fred was your recent one, I must have been reading Fred point, uh, 2.0. I didn't, I didn't realize it originally had been done um, a long time before. And, and one of the things I loved about that book is when you just, you know, you were talking about this uh, humble postman called Fred and, and his attitude and so on. And, and would, you know, would you just like to explain how that all came about for the people who, who aren't familiar with the book? Sure. When I moved to Denver, Colorado, I was single and living alone, and I had an extraordinary postal carrier. If anyone would like to uh, to read the story for free, they can go to 
fredfactor.com and they can see uh, what I call the, the first Fred I ever met, which is chapter one of the book. And he did such an amazing job uh, at such a, a simple process of delivering the mail that he inspired me. I started talking about him in my speaking. You know, he uh, he became a friend. He was able to add value through the attentiveness to whether I was home or not, making sure that my mail and packages were well hidden so that burglars would neither know that I was gone nor steal them off my porch. And I thought, you know, if if someone can do such an extraordinary job at such a, a simple task, then none of us have an excuse. You know, it's not mm. the job you have, but how you do the job that makes the difference. And I think one of the reasons why the book has been very successful is because I didn't write it about Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, you know, some of the richest people on the planet. I wrote it about someone who, like all of us, has a very uh, simple job, an ordinary day that we can either choose to keep extraordinary or excuse me, choose to keep ordinary or choose to make extraordinary. You know, at the end of the day, nobody can prevent you from choosing to be extraordinary. And then you, you went on to talk about, I think, what you called it, the four Fred principles. Yes. And, you know, it's um, funny. It's funny. I wrote the book as a business philosophy book, and, and it's a simple book. My books are short. Some people take little ideas and write big books. I try to take big ideas and write little books. And the reason for that is, is to simplify things. You know, we live in a time-challenged world. Everyone's busy, and often they buy books, but they don't read books. So I write short books, but I try to pack a lot of useful information and practical ideas in those books. And even though I wrote the book about uh, business philosophy, because I happen to think these four principles apply to any business or organization, it was embraced as a customer service book. And, and I'll share those four principles with you. The first is that everyone makes a difference. And that sounds pretty uh, familiar until you realize I'm not saying you can make a difference. I'm saying you do make a difference. And that the only question is what kind. You know, neutrality is a myth. If you meet somebody in the marketplace who will not help or engage you, you don't think they're neutral. You think they're indifferent. And, of course, when it comes to customer service, indifference is probably the most lethal mistake that anyone can make. I, I often say, you know, I'd rather you argue with me because at least I know you're engaged than ignore me. So one of the big messages I share with audiences is that everybody makes a difference. And if that's true, and I believe it is, the first job of leadership is to prove significance to others, to show the people that you lead, that what they do matters, that they're not just sleepwalking and going through the motions that their efforts have impact on other people, customers and, and colleagues and vendors in the community. So that's the first principle. Everybody makes a difference. The only question is what kind. The second is that it's all built on relationship. You know, what differentiates any product or service? And by the way, unless you invented something and you hold the, the trademark and nobody else sells it, you know, most of us sell basic goods and services and commodities, right? And the ultimate mm -hmm. differentiation, especially in a, in a soft business like financial services, where people represent the same investment tools, or education, where teachers teach the same subjects. It's the relationship you have with the customer. And, you know, we often say to employees, you know, we want you to build better relationships with customers, but we don't teach them how. And any expectation without education becomes frustration. Because a highly motivated employee will say, well, I'd love to build better relationships, make more connections, but how do I do it? I haven't been taught how. 
and it doesn't necessarily come natural to everyone. Uh, the third principle is you can add value to everything you do. It doesn't have to cost a nickel. Uh, one of my favorite points in my work of the past 33 years is this. Uh, the big challenge we have in business is not to outspend our competition, but to outthink them, to replace money with imagination, to replace capital with creativity, and figure out ways that through thoughtfulness and observation and attentiveness and creativity, we can enrich the experience for the customer. And finally, the fourth principle is that uh, you can reinvent yourself every day. And in a way, you have to, because if you get burnt out, you burn out the people you lead, you burn out the people you do business with, <laughs> you burn out the people you live with. Uh, mm -hmm. Motivation is an inside job. And I hope uh, the listeners of this podcast work at an organization that has lots of good incentives and motivations. But ultimately, you, the, the motivator motivates his or herself. You can't wait for or expect or depend on somebody else to do it. So it's about getting up in the morning with a renewed sense of purpose and passion so that you can bring some energy and enthusiasm to whatever it is that you do during the day. And so you mentioned in, so that was in the book that was originally done in 2004. And then, you know, there was the kind of re, new version of it a couple of years ago. So when, when you're speaking on stage, are you constantly sort of changing your, your keynotes and have you got many different keynotes? I mean, and so I'm, I'm presuming that was originally in a keynote you did, you know, sometime back in the, in the early part of this century, or are you still using that now? Well, I still am asked to speak on that subject. And typically what I will do uh, with a client, if they are interested, is kind of combine my best thinking from both the Fred Factor and Fred 2.0, because Fred 2.0 is a completely new book. There's no redundancy. There's there's continuity, but there's not overlap. If you read uh, Fred 2.0, you would have a great sense of what the Fred Factor was about. But if you'd read the Fred Factor, you wouldn't say, oh, deja vu. This is what he wrote about before. Yes, I'm mm -hmm. always changing my material. And with a new audience, you don't necessarily have to have new material, but there are two reasons I change my material. One is I want to make my points as relevant as I can to each audience. And every audience is different. They're in a different profession or a different business or a different industry. And I don't like to just make them do the hard work of applying what I'm talking about, but I try to make it as relevant and applicable as possible. And secondly, the reason that I keep changing my material is so that I don't bore myself. You know, I've given, <clears throat> depending on how you count, some 28, 2,900 speeches in my career. And if I gave the same speech every time, I would just be bored to tears. And if I'm bored <laughs> to tears, of course, I'm going to be boring my audience to tears. So my speech mm -hmm. is morph, and, and I do have uh, four or five discrete presentations uh, but my primary presentations are around uh, leadership, the Fred Factor, and then, of course, uh, my new book uh, will be a new program uh, called The Intention Imperative. And I know that you're a former president of the, um, is it the National Speakers Association in America, and you even got the, was it the Cavett Award? Yes, thank you. Very, very good backgrounding. And that's not so many people get that. I mean, would you just like to explain what that is for the people who, you know, especially in the UK, who have never heard of that? Well, the, the UK has uh, a sister organization that's part of the Global Speaker Federation. As a matter of fact, many years ago, my, uh, my wife and I traveled over to the UK and I had uh, the opportunity to speak to PSA there. So I have lots of great friends uh, in, in the business in the UK and throughout the world. But the NSA was the first organization 
for professional speaking, less or so for famous speakers that are celebrities or that you see on TV, and more for what I would call the, the journeyman or the working speaker, you know, the man or woman who does training and, and speaks either for a full-time profession or as part of their consulting or what other businesses they might be in. And the organization has been around for 40-ish years, and um, I got involved before I became a professional speaker. Uh, and the reason for that was I knew I wanted to be a professional speaker, and I wanted to learn as much as I could about the business before I started making my livelihood doing it. Uh, I'm a big believer in you know preparing, you know, not just burning your bridges and going cold turkey into a new profession where you're ill-equipped or uninformed. So I was president back in uh, uh, 2004, the same year that the Fred Factor came out. And uh, the organization exists really to provide two things that we all need, regardless of what profession we're in. And that is education and community, because professional speaking is a little different. You know, uh, most people don't, unless they've spoken professionally, quite understand all the idiosyncrasies and nuances of that profession. So it's nice to have a place to go where you can talk to like-minded people who've had similar experiences. And for I mean, there's quite a few people who are speaking in some capacity, whether they're doing keynotes or workshops or whatever it might be, who, who do listen to this. So how, how would you say that a speaker can over-deliver to, to their clients that they're working for? Well, first, I think that there's really two keys, and that is the content of what you say and how well you say it. Uh, when I was NSA president, uh, my theme was uh, expertise to the power of eloquence, or E to the power of E. Because if you have expertise but no eloquence, you know, you'll never get paid much, and you might end up in a kind of a dead-end rut in, uh, you know, academia or uh, in, uh, in HR, but you'll never be able to make the shift into the marketplace to get paid to speak. If you have eloquence, but you don't have expertise, then you're just a, you know, you're just a windbag, right? You're giving book reports, you're using other people's material, and neither of those scenarios is good. So I think that anyone that wants to over-deliver, anyone that wants to be a great speaker, needs to have something to say and say it very, very well. Uh, that means you've got to mine your experiences, you've got to mine, M-I-N-E, mine your education. You've got to mine what you've learned from the experiences of others, those that you've worked with. And you've got to design a, a compelling program that you can deliver in a way that keeps people engaged from beginning to end. And that's the foundation, because without those building blocks, you know, you're, you're building on a, on a bad foundation and eventually uh, it will catch up with you. I know that you've worked with a lot of sort of major names, you know, global names, uh, corporations such as um, FedEx and Harley Davidson and so on. Uh, what, what type of work is it generally that you're doing with these companies? What I primarily do is come in for a keynote presentation. I used to do training and development, two hours, three hours, six hours. But I focus my business so that if there's a sales meeting or a, a C-level executive meeting or an association meeting, uh, I will be engaged usually around one of the books that I've written about, but certainly around my expertise. And then I'll do um, a deep dive with the client to find out what their challenges are, what their desires are for the meeting. I try to help the client achieve their meeting goals by the keynote presentation that I give. And by a keynote, I mean uh, a one hour, typically 
presentation. I've spoken for as little as 20 minutes, and I don't think anything over 75 minutes or 90 minutes should ever be considered a keynote. But typically, mm-hmm. that's what I do. You say, well, Mark, is that it then? You know, you just come and leave. Well, not not exactly for a number of reasons. One is clients have my books as a way to extend the value of the time uh, that I've spent with them. I've also developed uh, online training and development, and I often shoot uh, videos specific to the client that they can use as a way after I leave to reinforce the key points that I've made or the key points that have been made at the meeting. But the point of my arrow is speaking and then secondarily the books that I write. And those are the two things that uh, preoccupy me uh, most of the time. And, And which do you prefer? Well, I love speaking. That's the most fun, being on stage. But getting to and from the speech and flying in hotels and the challenges of travel aren't that much fun. And I love mm-hmm. writing. Uh, but selling a book is art, is even harder than writing a good book because there are just mm-hmm. so many books that are being published by traditional publishers as well as being self-published that, you know, both speaking and writing have their challenges. But I like the craft of each. If I had to choose, I'm probably first and foremost a speaker. And, and on the writing, I mean, are you are you always sort of thinking about what your next book's going to be? Or when, once you've finished a book, do you just like to just rest for a while before you start on the next one? Uh, the answer is yes and yes. Uh, I am always thinking, do I have another book? And I, I don't ever want to write a book just to write a book. You know, despite what mm. cynics might say, uh, I really don't have to write a book to make a living. I write books because I'm trying to help people solve problems and increase their leadership effectiveness. But Mm. I do have in the back of my mind, having worked with the same literary agent for many years, I do have in the back of my mind future books I think I'd like to write. The problem, Mm. of course, as a writer is you've got to have a publisher that wants to publish what you think you'd like to write. And I can't tell you how many books I thought were brilliant, you know, how many ideas I had that the publisher said, you know, and (laughs) never saw the light of day. What I do, though, and if anyone, you know, people say, you know, how do you write a book? Well, the first question should be, how do you become a good writer? And it's going to it's going to sound flip when I say this, but you write a lot. Mm -hmm. You write a blog. You use Twitter to condense big ideas into, you know, a, a short number of characters. But you write articles, you write uh, as much as you can, but you don't just write. You find a a good editor, someone that can help you become a better writer. If there's one thing that's helped me become a better writer over my career, it's been the editors that I've worked with that may Mm -hmm. not have the ideas that I have, but they've got the chops when it comes to phrasing those ideas, going from passive to active voice, cutting back on adverbs and adjectives. And so if you really want to be, and, and there are on online now so many inexpensive but good editors and writing programs that you can take. Then when you want to write a book, what you really need is a powerful idea and an outline. The worst thing you can do, and I, I've met any number of people that said, Mark, I sat down and I started to write. And after three and a half pages, I ran out of things. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I would too. What you've got to do is you've got to have a big idea that's big enough to carry a book, and then you have to have 10 or 12 or 14 chapters outlined before you can hope to make any consistent progress writing. So once you do that, write a lot, become a good writer, have an idea, outline your book. And once you have the outline, in my opinion, and in my experience, then the writing of the book goes much more easily. 
you know, you mentioned about all the the books that you've written, and I, I imagine you're often getting feedback from people on what they thought about the different books, and <laughs> and then when you are speaking at events, you mentioned about the books as well, so you're probably getting feedback there. So does that then make you want to go back and change some things about books, or you just or you just use those thoughts for your future books? Well, I, I've not really done any re-edits, but for sure I've gotten good feedback I could use for future books. You know, there's criticism where people attack me. That really doesn't help. It just makes me feel bad. And then there's mm-hmm. feedback, which is when people give me ideas. You know, my, I, I, uh, in my last book, I didn't, not by design, but unintentionally, I didn't include very many women uh, examples, female examples of uh you know, how to keep getting better. And I had a woman contact me very politely and professionally and, and it was negative feedback. She said, you need to change that. And I agree. And so in the new book, I wanted to make sure that I included uh, a better representation of all the, uh, the women and female leaders that are doing great work, not just the men, which I know mm-hmm. because I am male, you know, most of my, my circle of uh, friends, not all, but many of them are, are male. So that was really helpful feedback. When somebody just, you know, gives me a negative review and says, I only write books because I need the money and I've sold out to uh, to the man, which it cracks me up. It's kind of a hippie thing, selling out to the man. You know, that mm. that's just that's just criticism. And I can't do anything with that. I just have I'm very secure in my motivations and who I am. And I just after many years have tried to ignore that kind of useless dribble. Mm. And so you mentioned about the new book that's coming out later this year. So what was the inspiration for that? And if you'd like to sort of mention a bit more about what it's about. I was doing some work with four of my friends called The Five Friends, which is not, we've kind of formed because of our long-term friendships and our love of bourbon and food. And it was certainly social in the beginning. And then we thought, well, you know, let's, let's do some projects together. And we did a blog and we did a video blog and, we did some consulting and we did some events. And um, at one of the events, I noticed that all the businesses in the room that we had represented our clients, and there was a great diversity, small businesses, large businesses, everything in between. They, <clears throat> they all had similar problems that got me to thinking about a question that I've been asked for most of my career. And that is, what's the one thing that all great leaders or all successful people have in common? And for 30 plus years, I was honest and said, I'm not sure. I've not seen one thing that everybody has in common. I've seen some leaders that do it wrong and are successful. I've seen some leaders that do it right and weren't successful. But after that meeting with our clients, I realized that there were two things that had to be in place, the irreducible minimums for leadership and or success. And the first is clarity about what it is you want to do. And the second is consistent action daily to do it. And I call that intentionality. And that is, it's one thing to intend to do something, but if you don't have clarity on what it is, and that's what I noticed that day, you know, um, if you ever heard the old cliche that good is enemy of best, you know, Mm -hmm. there are so many good things a business person can do that they often get distracted. But once they become crystal clear about what they want to do and why they want to do it, Then the second part of that is, is taking consistent action. And I've worked with leaders that took consistent action, but lacked clarity. And I've worked with leaders that had clarity, but didn't take the right actions. And I realize that when you combine those two, you end up with what I call the intention imperative. 
being crystal clear every day about what it is you and your organization are trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it. And then taking the right actions, because in the book, and obviously it's a, you know, we don't have time to get into it now. A lot of leaders have new clarity, but they're using old behaviors to try to achieve it. What I call in the book, doing business in the world that was, not the world that is. You know, people get locked into habits from the past and they have a hard time uh, doing the right things in the present. And so when, once you, you'd formed that kind of nucleus of the idea about what you wanted the, the next book to be about, so how did you then go about sort of researching and, and getting some sort of stories and so on for the book? Well, I'm always researching. I'm a voracious reader. I have a huge intake of ideas every day, more and more online, although I still favor uh, printed books uh, in that regard when it comes to, to reading. But, you know, once I have uh, the out again, and I go to the idea that I mentioned earlier, once I have an outline, then I start doing both formal and informal research. Uh, in the new book, I did something I've not done before, and I'm pretty excited about it because it worked well. And that is I interviewed five very different organizations that are all very successful. And I talked to their leaders to find out how they became successful. And what I found is that those organizations, without knowing what each leader in each organization said, the leaders always talked about the same things. Now, that's anecdotal or qualitative research. It's not quantitative. I can't tell you that 79.2% of all leaders do this or 63% don't do this. But what I can tell you is, is that when you take five leaders from five different businesses and you find out that they're all talking about being very clear on what and why they do it and consistently communicating that message and having contact with everybody in the organization, not just a few. And I, I at the end of the book, I think I have 33 actionable. And the only reason I say I think is I can't remember if it was 33 or 35. I have 33 or 35 actionable ideas that I gleaned from both these leaders and my research around culture and inspiration and how important it is to create positive emotion in the workplace. You, you talked before about how often a lot of your keynotes are because companies contact you, they've read the book and they want you to come and talk about some of the ideas in the books that they've, they've read. So that book, as it's, as it's not out yet, so I, I imagine therefore does that mean you're not talking about the ideas that you've been writing about recently or, or do you start to slowly put some of those into your keynotes? I do start to incorporate some of those ideas and I've given some teasers. As a matter of fact, I spoke uh, earlier this week in Phoenix and at breakfast, I shared with a VIP group uh, the client had assembled the outline of the book. And the reason I do that is one is to develop not the material. I have the ideas, but develop the delivery. And number two, to kind of test with the audience to see what resonates with them. You know, that's one thing that you can do uh, with a blog or a tweet is you can find out what people like the most by how often they like or, or share it. Right. And it's mm -hmm. the same when I speak. You know, I can put ideas in there and afterwards someone will come up and say, wow, you know, I, I really like what you said about culture. You know, I, I never quite understood how to define it before. So I do start to incorporate it and. Uh, I, I kind of morph those ideas together so that in the not before the book comes out, I will be doing the new presentation. I want to be respectful of your time. I know that you're, you're, you've got a very busy schedule. So before we finish, what, what are your thoughts on over delivering and, and exceeding expectations? What, you know, how do you, what do you think about that whole area? 
Well, I've always been a huge fan of, of exceeding expectations, but you know, let me share two or three things that I think are important to realize. One is you can't exceed every expectation every time, nor should you try. You know, mm-hmm. Tom Peters used to say, delight the customer. Well, think about it. If you tried to delight every customer every day, you'd get so far behind, you'd have to give up. You can't, mm-hmm. nor should you try. It takes too much energy, and frankly, it isn't feasible. I do think, however, that you should try to exceed expectations with the most important customers and at the most important times. And that means having a sense of what is a critical experience or what is a a big opportunity where exceeding expectations will have the biggest impact. Uh, The second thing I would suggest is that exceeding expectations doesn't mean you do it two or three times better. It just means you do it a little better. And that's why I like the word extraordinary. It just means a little extra with the ordinary. And so I would look for little things you can do. You know, And one of the things you can often do to exceed expectations these days is to be very present with people. When you're with them, not to be distracted, not to be thinking about what you're going to do next, but to just give them your full attention. And with, in a world where people are in such a rush, I actually think that exceeds expectations. Uh, the third thing I would say is before you can exceed expectations, you better know what the customer expects. And we sometimes assume incorrectly. You know, every customer has a little bit different expectations of every reader, every audience. And so you need to tailor your efforts to what is important to that individual. And finally, I'll share something right out of the Fred factor. The fourth idea is simply that uh, you can't delight everybody every time. But the tragedy is we go days or weeks or months without delighting anybody. So what I suggest is what I call the one a day principle. Not only is it doable and achievable, but it's a lot of fun. And that is find one person a day, whether it's a customer, a colleague, a a vendor, a friend, a, a spouse, find somebody that you can do something really cool for that they'll think about and remember and tell others. Because if you do one great thing a day for one person. That's five great experiences a week for five different people in the course of a business week. And before you know it, you'll have a reputation as someone who uh, over delivers by doing extraordinary things. Now, I love that. So if people want to find out more about you, Mark, where should they go? MarkSanborn.com, M-A-R-K-S-A-N-B-O-R-N.com. And they can follow mm-hmm. me on social media. I'm on all the platforms. Do a search for me, Mark underscore Sanborn at Twitter. And then uh, both on LinkedIn, Facebook, Facebook fan page. But if they just remember my name, MarkSanborn.com, everything they need to know to contact me or to get more uh, information is there. Okay, well, all the links you've mentioned and, and the earlier links you mentioned, I'll put all of those in, in the show notes. And uh, I, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Mark, and I'm sure the listeners have got a lot, lot out of this as well. Well, likewise. Thank you for having me. All the best. Next week in episode 20, I speak with Tom Ross, who started out as a freelance graphic designer. And over time, he built his business to 16 full-time staff and and many additional contractors and into multiple seven figures in revenue. But he was working so hard, he put himself in hospital. He then decided to change things around and he tried a new approach and he built a community of over 400,000 members and 100,000 social media followers. And he has a podcast called the Honours Honest Designers Podcast, and he has another podcast he does as well. So that's next week's episode with Tom Ross. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. 
please do subscribe to the show, leave a review. That would be fantastic. You can join the Facebook group, um, which is obviously called Exceeding Expectations. And I look forward to speaking of you next week.